Hello and welcome to the Transfer Window, the podcast that takes you inside the biggest deals at the biggest clubs in world football. I'm Johnny McFarlane and joining me today are our Transfer Market Insiders and Pundits Extraordinaire, Duncan Castles and Ian McGarry. This week, Manchester United target Brazilian international defender Eder Militao from Porto as Jose Mourinho looks to rebuild his failing Manchester United defence. But will the Portuguese manager survive to make January deals happen as United's Premier League slump continues? Chelsea may look to make a statement signing by grabbing American star Christian Pulisic from Dortmund. We look at why a FIFA investigation may trigger a big money January spend. And we bring news on how political pressure could force the Premier League to act on sovereign state ownership. Okay, well, we're going to start with some Manchester United transfer news. And Duncan has a story on a Brazilian international who's on Jose Mourinho's list. Yes, uh, the ongoing uh, multi-year search for a, a reliable uh, defensive uh, heart of Manchester United's defence centre-back that Jose Mourinho's been conducting since he got to the club. Um, another uh, name that they are looking at um, and he's proposed as an option for uh, January as FC Porto's uh, Eder Militão, who's a, a 20-year-old, um, only signed by Porto in the summer from Sao Paulo. Uh, they got him on uh, very good terms. Sao Paulo received €4 million Euros for the deal plus 10% of the, the sell-on because he only had uh, six months left in his contract. He'd been watched by a number of English clubs beforehand. He was on... Um, quite prominent in Manchester City's recruitment list. But Porto were prepared to take um, what was seen as a gamble on him at the time. He's pretty much uh, not quite gone straight into Porto's central defence, but he got into the team quite early in the season, has been an absolute fixture since. They're um, top of the Portuguese league and they're top of their uh, qualifying group in the Champions League going into the games this evening. Um, and he's, uh, there's a general acceptance that he's going to go well beyond the level of the Portuguese league. Uh, Mourinho likes him. Obviously, as we've discussed um, in this podcast on several occasions, what Mourinho really wants is experienced top-level defender who is ready to lead the defence immediately. But I think the fact that Militao has been considered as an option on his side uh, tells you where the club is. Again, um, it tells you that the board are more likely to do something with a player who's younger, who would cost less money. Um, Porto would ask for a big uh, profit on this, but it's not going to be any, anywhere near the cost of, for example, signing um, Kaladu Koulibaly from Napoli, who's who's basically top of Mourinho's list as for the, the, the you know that experienced option, ready-made option. Um, and he's, and I think because he's looking at alternatives like this, is telling you that he's not certain, uh, not by any means certain, that he's going to get funded properly uh, in January, if at all. Um, we talked about uh, Matthias de Ligt um, last week, uh, and I think Ian um, told us how uh, Mino Raiola had offered de Ligt to, uh, to Manchester United and, and that um, Edward Wood had been quite keen on that deal. 
Um, he, as we, as we said, is on um, is also on the list. But I think if you contrast Militown to De Ligt, you're looking at a vast difference in price. Um, I did a piece for the record on Ajax and on um, what is their amazing track record of bringing top players to the Premier League, particularly centre-backs, and was asking um, a contact at Ajax about De Ligt and uh, was told that they, they think they can take 100 million euros um, for De Ligt and also for um, Frankie de Jong, who Manchester City and, and various Spanish clubs have been looking at as a midfield recruit. So um, we, we talked about how it would probably be difficult to get De Ligt anyway because his preference is to move to Spain. But you, in Militown, there's um, a player similar age, um, developing talent that Mourinho is proposing as an alternative if he can't get what he really wants, which is the experience centre-back in January. What I find about uh, intriguing, Duncan, about this particular um, potential transaction is the fact that Mourinho is clearly willing to compromise what he wants in order to fit in with what the Manchester United board are asking for or, or are demanding, i.e. that um, he doesn't buy a player who is older and will hit the ground running and who has Premier League experience um, because and with potentially no resale value, like Alder Vareld, for instance, who's 29, and if you give him a four-year contract, then there's going to be no resale value there. And you've got to... With, with Mourinho's character um, and his modus operandi, he doesn't compromise... At all, really. He, 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 you know, he's very, very well known for not um, giving into other people's points of view and for saying that his way is the only way and what his way is right. So, in targeting a player like this, um, it seems to me that he is almost accepting the fact that he's tried hard to recruit the kind of player that um, he believes is the right one for Manchester United, but that in doing so, he has failed. Um, to get his way and instead now is willing to come a certain way into the middle ground and say, OK, Militown is someone who is young, who has got potential, who we can get che more cheaply and who I can develop. And I think that's very, very interesting. Um, and what, is, what do you think it tells us about Mourinho's mindset, uh, Duncan, with regard to going forward as Manchester United manager? Because as I said, compromise is not always on his agenda. I think, look, I think very much his strong preference is for the experienced defender. He's going to push for that. But this is kind of like a backup strategy for him. And it, and it does, I think you're right, it tells, tells you that his position is insecure at the club. And um, it tells you he knows that he, there's a good chance he won't get what he wants. Um, and um, this window could be extremely important to him because the club, um, the team is underperforming. I mean, the defensive record in the Premier League is appalling for a Mourinho side. I think it's 21 goals conceded in, in 13 matches, which is pretty much unheard of from a Mourinho team. Um, he's, you know, he's gone through the reasons why that's happening. He's, he's, they've been trying to play in a more expansive game. He's not been able to get a settled partnership because uh, players like Bailly and Jones uh, develop muscular problems. Um, and he, and he, he's felt that he needed to put two players together, which he did, and in, in, he's done for the last, I think, seven games in, in Lindelof and Smalling and got an improvement, 
nowhere near perfection, but an improvement in defensive performance because of it. But now Lindelof's injured and he's, he, he's looking at that issue again. But yeah, I think, um, look, we, we, you, it's not hard to see every time a result goes against um, Manchester United that there is a clamour for him to be replaced as manager. Um, and you know, as we as we talked about several months ago, when the stories were were going around that he was going to be sacked um, for definite after the Newcastle United game, regardless of the result, um, there had been a meeting uh, between his agent and Ed Woodward ahead of that game, and he, and and his agent had been told we're not we're still supportive, um, we're not uh, planning to change the manager, but results have to improve, um, and. And Mourinho has been working with that in mind, that he's under pressure to get results. And most important of all, under pressure to qualify for the team for the Champions League. Um, their Champions League performances have actually been better than everything else. But um, they, he, he has been unable to get a consistent run of performances and results from this team. Um, and he knows he has to turn that around. So uh, when it gets to that kind of scenario, um, compromise is probably going to be necessary in, in the transfer market uh, to get on because he knows he doesn't have absolute faith of the of the board anymore so it's something better than nothing i think that's the that's the the thinking on Mourinho's part at the moment an improvement what, is better than the ideal improvement what about the way he's been going about that obviously the comment that he made with regards to the team lacking heart was one that suggests that uh, he's in a place where he feels like he needs to really, really dig out his players to get performance out of them. Is that ever going to work in today's modern game? He has. He has dug out the players um, earlier in the season. I think after um, is it the Brighton defeat, um, forget which, which game uh, it specifically it happened, but one of the poorer performances early in the season, he did. Uh, take them in uh, to the training ground subsequently and basically read the riot act in front of them um, and and did it in in a more um, thorough manner than anything he's done at Manchester United to try and get a reaction from them. And yes, it's, it's true. He's making comments saying that there wasn't uh, enough intensity uh, or a lack of heart on the field um, at the Crystal Palace game. Um, you know, his argument was that they, he'd set the team out well tactically, given them a game plan to play Crystal Palace in it, and it was working early on in the match. And I, I mean, I do I watched that game uh, on television, and I remember the uh, um, the the co-commentator saying, you know, how well the tactics were working in the early early period of that game, commenting on how he'd switched uh, Pogba's position in midfield and how it's working for them. But then they fell away, and they they really did implement poorly. And I, and I think it, I think he, that that criticism of a lack of intensity is justified from the performance in the game. But really, it's it it, it doesn't actually matter whether Mourinho is right in these comments anymore. He's he is the one who is responsible for the team, and he's the one who's taking the flak. And if there are changes, fundamental changes to be made at Manchester United. The, the likelihood is, if the results keep going this way, the fundamental change will be of him, regardless of whether he's right in his, in a, in his analysis of what is wrong with the with the site. Which I think, you know, personally, I think he is correct, and I think he's 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 pointed out a lot of the deficiencies. And I also thought it was interesting ahead of the the Champions League um, 
press conference uh, uh, yesterday when he, you know, he was repeatedly questioned on on the problems of the team and what had happened in the Crystal Palace match, and he and he said, look, said to the journalist, I don't want to talk about this anymore. When I'm open with you, and when I try to analyse things with you, and when I try to be honest with you, they're always the illuminated that criticise me because of that. So I think it's better not to speak too much. And I, and I think he, he really is in a position where, unless the results go for him. He, there's virtually nothing he can say without without being criticised for what he says, if it's of any interest whatsoever. And I also think, Duncan, um, we've seen um, part of this story before when uh, Mourinho's been at a club and, and results decline uh, and degrade. And through one thing or another, the criticism of the players begins to, to leak out through in his press conference. It's true that they get um, magnified or extrapolated in certain quarters of the media with regards to what he says and, and what he actually said. But for, you know, I've, I've, our listeners have heard me say this so many times um, that if you give a player an excuse to fail, then he'll fail. And unfortunately, when you openly criticise your players in public rather than in the dressing room, it generally tends to be a kind of last resort of... Um, how I'm going to try and deal with the, this particular situation on the pitch as it multiplies and as it becomes more and more of a problem. And in doing so, it's a battle, in my experience, you cannot win. Very, very few managers have been in a position where they've, uh, like Mourinho's, where they've had Manchester United has the worst start uh, to any league campaign in 28 years and survived um, that for very long and so when Mourinho consistently criticises his players no matter how subtly he does it and no matter how um, much hyperbole is then um, given to that criticism it's the criticism still there the basis of what he's saying remains to be there to be analysed and to be interpreted and to me that's someone who is definitely fighting a, a, a retreat in terms of the battle and I wonder what the core, the core problems are at Manchester United between in that dressing room, and Jose Mourinho. Lots of people have speculated that he's yesterday's man. That he, you know, his comments about players being too um, indulged or spoilt was a, a word which was taken out of context in that particular South American television interview. But unfortunately, players will not respond to that anymore. They will see that as an insult because of their lifestyles, because of the narrative of their lifestyles now, uh, because of social media and the way that they want to portray themselves uh, in, you know, this very sort of cosseted and privileged world, which they enjoy. There's no way that players are self-critical. Very, very few players are grounded these days, whether it be an academy player, right through to a first-team player in a top-six club. They're not interested in in, um, in people's opinions about them being, oh, a good guy or this or the other. They're more interested in the fact that they do have wealth, they get allowed to flaunt it, and they are well paid for what they do. And we saw from Mourinho's um, reaction to Paul Pogba's video, which was um, Derby County's DFL uh, Cup defeat, the way that he responded and trained the next day, uh, regardless of what the timings were and everything else, the bottom line was he was very, very critical and negative about the fact that, that video had been posted at all. 
and he felt that that, that would have been an insult to him and to the club as a whole, whereas Pogba just saw it as a bit of fun. And so these little things, which appear to be insignificant, can actually become um, part of a momentum which has got Mourinho and his players in a position to where they are now, whereas there, there are some who support him and there are some who are loggerheads with him. And the general interpretation is that he doesn't understand or doesn't want to understand what the modern player is about. And so he's trying to go back to basics now. And so in consistently trying to constructively criticise his players about certain things and certain parts of their attitude, unfortunately now is seen as him slating them um, and therefore a man on some kind of suicide mission who's already pressed the trigger. Uh, I don't see it that way, but I think that's how it's being portrayed. And I think that is possibly one of the most dangerous and certainly one of the most um, sort of telling parts of how the story comes to an end. He's certainly, he's certainly, he's certainly not trying to get himself the sack. I mean, that, that theory's been going around for a while um, and it's not the case. He knows the importance of this job to him and to his reputation. So, so that's not the thing. I think, I think one of the key issues here is... Um, is the quality of the players at the club. Um, you know, if you look, uh, for example, at Chris Smalling, who's actually had a relatively good season by his standards, Chris Smalling is now being touted for a new contract at Manchester United. He's, you know, he's played more at centre-back than anyone else at Manchester United this season. He's now on his fourth Manchester United manager and he has never established himself as an absolute guaranteed starter through an entire season um, who is you know an unquestionable uh, leader um, and and a powerful figure in that defense and you know you've got to ask questions about that and you've got Phil Jones who's in essentially the same position he's been through the same number of managers he's been at the club for almost the same length of time and he's even further away from establishing himself as the um, dominant centre-back at Manchester United, which is what he was signed for. If you remember when he, he, was, um, he was bought by Manchester United, all the top clubs in England were chasing him because he was being billed as the, the next John Terry because of his, uh, his physique and the way he played the game. But he, he's, you know, he's, he's no more than a squad player who usually spends a high percentage of the, of the season injured, yet he's still there. So you can understand why, why a manager um, with the expectation level with the desire to win that Jose Mourinho has placed in a situation where um, you know anything other than winning the Premier League is regarded as um, a, a massive failure on his part because it's Manchester United um, not because it, not because there's a consideration of the players there but because of the name on the badge of the shirt those players are wearing you can understand why he's frustrated and why why it is such it's become such a challenge for him because it's, it's hard to manage in those circumstances, full stop. There has been a drop-off, though, from last season, hasn't there, Duncan? Would you would you accept that? I mean, obviously, they came second, and they're, they're sitting in seventh now. They are seven points away from Chelsea, sitting in fourth place. Already a bit of a gap growing in terms of that Champions League place that's so important for them. Yeah, absolutely. And you could say that, that you know, Mourinho is culpable for part of that in the sense that a lot of, a, a big element in this is the, the kind of internal war that went on 
inside the club over the transfer market in the summer. So, you know, he, he came back in pre-season and, and fought a war to try and get better um, recruits, uh, specifically at centre-back. And uh, the fallout of that war was a bad start to the season, um, which has continued into them being, you know, too far, too far off the pace in the Premier League. Um, so, yeah, it, it has been worse. And you can say that, that Mourinho has a degree of culpability for that. But you can also argue that that degree of culpability actually shouldn't be there because it's clear to anyone who understands football that United do not have a good enough um, options at centre-back. They do not have a top-class central defender, experienced central defender, which is what he was asking for. And as a result of that, they struggle to compete. Um, so, you know, yes, he caused the problems, but what fundamentally caused that problem was the board saying, no, uh, we're not going to sign those players because we don't think they're good value. We think the five centre-backs currently at the club are all better than the options being proposed, which include Toby Alderweireld. And um, uh, we would sign you a centre-back and we would spend lots of money on them, but it's got to be uh, someone like Rafael Varane, um, who mysteriously Real Madrid didn't want to sell to us when we, we tried to sign him in, uh, a few weeks before the transfer window closed over, over a, a baguette in a, an American hotel. In, in terms of perspective, though, as well, we should say that, you know, Duncan and I, Johnny, discussed the shortcomings of Weimar Laporte and John Stones um, on the podcast in the past, and, and those are two players who actually have stepped up, you know, in recent uh, weeks to play very well for Manchester City. Um, and so I guess if you want to be Red Devil's advocate, if you want to put it that way and put my horns on uh, at the top, then I would say, well, what's Pep Guardiola done differently with Laporte and Stones that Jose's not managed to do with uh, Lindelof, okay, who's now injured, and Bailly? Because uh, those two players have become better players, albeit obviously they tend to have less of the ball because of the attacking players ahead of them. Okay, well, we're going to move on now to Chelsea and their pursuit of an American star playing in Germany. Duncan, tell us more. Yeah, they um, are looking, or well, have been working on this deal um, for over a year now. It's Christian Pulisic, who um, has very much signposted his um, intention, desire, expectation that you'll leave Borussia Dortmund. Uh, before too long. Uh, he's got one and a half years left in his contract. He's refused to uh, sign a new contract at Dortmund. Um, Dortmund are aware he's going to leave. Um, their public stance is that they won't allow him to leave before the end of the season. What's interesting with Chelsea, I think, is that um, they might be under pressure to do this deal in January because of um, they're under investigation, uh, not for the first time by FIFA, um, for um, signing players underage. Um, the, the disciplinary panel within FIFA, who is investigating this case and has good evidence on it, and I think it's pretty clear that they are going to be found guilty of this now. Um, they are pushing for not just a, uh, a single window or a double window transfer ban. They want four windows of transfer ban because, it's a, because of the scale of um, the transgression. Um, uh, with, uh, I think, 14 players' um, transfers being investigated. Um, and, and also because they've, they've had to look at Chelsea before, um, 
Gal Kukuta was uh, an example of a transfer that was uh, investigated by FIFA in, I think, 2009. Uh, Chelsea managed to avoid uh, get themselves out of a transfer ban then by essentially paying off loans, the club they, they'd taken him from as a 15-year-old, um, to, to make the case go away. But certainly it has to come into Chelsea's considerations that there is a real risk that they will not be able to do um, any transfers for at least a year after this after the January window. Um, as we've talked about many times in the podcast, they've got no certainty at all that Eden Hazard will remain at the club. Um, Eden has been pushing for a move to Real Madrid. Real Madrid are very interested. He did say talk this week about um, this past week that uh, he didn't see himself leaving in the January window because that would not be fair in the club. Um, and there's a possibility that he could stay longer term, but um, the consideration for Chelsea has to be the, the risk of losing a player who is their most most important attacking force. And as I say, they've been working on um, potential re replacements for uh, not just Hazard, but William for over a year with Pulisic, um, who is young, um, very skillful, um, and uh, also very attractive for Premier League clubs because he's basically the biggest name and most marketable name in American um, football, American soccer at present. So uh, he comes with the potential of, of uh, lots of commercial revenue on top of whatever talents he can produce in the field, which, as we know, is always appealing to Premier League clubs these days. I, I think that's correct, Duncan. And I also think that um, the current... Uh, it, sort of... Uh, Let's just difficulties regarding FFP and how that is going to play out as well. Um, Paris Saint Germain and Manchester City um, investigations more generally will put pressure on this next market, and therefore players like Pulisic uh, and others will uh, their prices will be much higher because everyone in European football knows that clubs like Chelsea, PSG, City are under scrutiny for certain. Um, rules and the ones that they've transgressed and therefore prices will be higher the market will become more intense and indeed the market's already become more intense because of what information i've had um through um the agent channels etc and through clubs in the last even just two weeks is that that clubs like chelsea are desperately trying to recruit um in this window, at a time and in a window which they would normally get involved in or in a high stakes or high financial um, climate, they will do so because they believe that there's a potential transfer ban coming their way. Um, so it's going to be very interesting, I think, over the next um, 6 to 12 weeks with regards to deals that are trying to be done and the money that is going to change hands. So, Ian, what have we seen in the past in terms of actual length of bans? Because we believe that there are five Premier League clubs uh, being investigated currently by FIFA. Well, what we've seen, Johnny, is, is a fearlessness about FIFA in terms of the names that they have punished. Um, both Madrid clubs, Atletico and Real, along with Barcelona, have been handed down bans of two windows. Um, Madrid's, Real Madrid was reduced to one. But these are very recent bans and have set a precedent with regards to the illegal recruitment in FIFA's eyes of young players outside of Europe, uh, mainly from South America in the case of the three Spanish clubs. 
Now, with five clubs under investigation in the Premier League, but Chelsea being the most prominent, um, I believe there are questions both not just to be answered, um, but certainly uh, there is a very, very high risk of, of bans being greater than the ones handed out to the, the three Spanish clubs. On the basis that, if you're, if you're willing and able to um, punish you know, three of the most elite clubs in Europe with those kind of um, uh, punishments, and, and then if other clubs realise that that is what's at stake, then the only way to go is to increase those bans in order to get some kind of modicum of um, stabilisation in terms of the rules and to warn other clubs off of doing the same thing. So Chelsea can, I think, expect uh, what Duncan said, which would be a four-window ban effectively would be two years. Now, they can appeal against that, but I, I, I genuinely think that the um, in, in terms of Chelsea, they're expecting something and, uh, and they will act in January to try and circumnavigate at least a little bit um, what the impact will be on their club. Now, let's be clear for, for everyone and for our listeners specifically, if a transfer ban is announced, then you cannot recruit players at all at any level um, to, um, to join your club. So in losing Aiden Hazard, which they could do because clubs, you know, they are allowed, the clubs are allowed to come in and buy players from a club under a transfer ban. It's not the case that because obviously under European law, players would then could appeal to the European Court of Human Rights with regards to freedom of trade. So Hazard would not be banned from leaving Chelsea, but Chelsea would be banned from recruiting someone to replace him. In terms of that, then Pulisic is not just desirable for Chelsea in January. He's actually essential in terms of their recruitment policy to um, negate that potential Hazard move to Real Madrid because they will be unable to recruit anyone afterwards in the summer transfer window to replace Hazard, who clearly, even just through his performances this season, has shown himself to be the, Chelsea's most creative and most important player. Um, people will say, well, is this fair or not? Because, you know, if clubs can see the punishment coming, is it fair that they are allowed to, to buy players? Well, it's just the same as any walk of life, really, isn't it? You, you've got to try and do what you can to... Um, abnegate the uh, the potential uh, consequences of something which is, is upcoming. So in which case, uh, as I said, I, I can see January being a busy window, not just for Chelsea, but as I said, the possibility of FFP um, regulations and therefore punishments being imposed on PSG and on um, Manchester City. I think we will see more, even though Pep Guardiola, I think, said last week, There'll be no incomings. I, I I don't see don't see that being the case. I think there will be, as well um, as clubs effectively uh, do the uh, the old Brexit. Let's talk about medicines, etc. Just in case we get no deal. So in this case, it's uh, we will get punishment. So uh, they're they're going to be doing that again. That will inflate the market. It will make it more interesting for all of us, obviously, to talk about. But it will also be a direct response to the the threat of bans. Uh, coming their way in the next six to eight months. There's no danger of a no-deal scenario, though, with Jose in charge of the Brexit negotiations. Absolutely not, no. He, he will get... He, Jose... Uh, in fact, you know what? I think Jose will probably appear on the live debate with Jeremy Corbyn and uh, Theresa May, which we'll come to later in the Good Fight round. <laughs> <laughs> OK, well, um, moving on. The situation of academic Matthew Hedges, who's just been released back to the UK after being imprisoned in the United Arab Emirates... 
is likely to exert some political pressure on one of our clubs, Ian. Yeah, it's something which, you know, we always have um, whispers in the uh, so-called corridors of power with regards to multiple situations which um, often affect sport and um, and our clubs as well, Johnny. And um, we have um, a very uh, sort of active DCMS, Department, for, Department of Culture, Media and Sport. And we've included digital uh, recently in that title as well. Uh, they're quite a strong, powerful committee, uh, quite, quite a lobbying committee as well with regards to their role in the UK government. And uh, my information was that um, they were consulted uh, during the Foreign and Commonwealth Office's, uh, let's just say, um, their um, applications and their um, certainly their remonstrations with United Arab Emirates uh, Foreign Office and Government Departments regarding the uh, life sentence hand handed down to uh, Matthew Hedges, the UK academic, who um, this week received a pardon from his life sentence, having been sentenced to life imprisonment only eight days ago. So uh, a massive U-turn, if you like, with regards to the way that uh, justice was dispensed in the UAE. But the fact of the matter is, if you have an owner in um, Sheikh Mansour who is a member of the ruling family um, of the Emirati, uh, and who is also um, clearly the sole shareholder in a club like Manchester City, a club that invests billions of pounds in in players and, and also into the club in this country, then there is a little bit of um, leverage that you can obviously apply with regards to how things may or may not turn out in political decisions which are have emanated from the UAE. So it's just interesting because obviously we've had uh, discussions recently about the... Um, the European Clubs Association and their uh, particular um, arguments and protests against uh, alleged um, breaches of financial fair play by Manchester City and, and Paris Saint-Germain, we shouldn't forget. Uh, so it's just one of those things which raises the question because the only legislation that, uh, if you like, is controlled in this country with regards to football and ownership is the Premier League's fit and proper persons test. Now, it's been the case for some time that um, uh, human rights groups uh, have um, made representations to the UK government regarding um, Sheikh Mansour's ownership of Manchester City uh, and the human rights record that they have there as well. And so what you see now is this, this what you said was sports washing. Sports washing is effectively uh, an acronym for, yeah, for, for making something um, shiny and new. Um, and effectively, uh, you know, without uh, any kind of stain, if you like, uh, to continue the pun, um, when actual fact there, there's maybe dirty washing there in, as well. And so the, uh, the human rights groups have been lobbying uh, the UK government with regards to Sheikh Mansour's ownership of Manchester City. Um, that's now moved on a little bit of a notch now because DCMS, uh, some members of that committee have been asking questions uh, of the Premier League with regards to fit and proper persons tests and saying, you know, can you actually uh, justify the fit and, pro per uh, fit and proper persons test you have currently with regard to the UE ruling family and the fact that they own and invest so heavily in Manchester City. So 
I'm not saying that there's any kind of you know action coming this time soon, but and the fact that Hedges as well has been given this um, this uh, presidential pardon means that it, it does calm what could have become choppy waters. But you know it's one to look out for in the future because it's it's one of the ways, if you like, that the uh, the pressure or the politics of both. Um, government and sport interrelate and you know one should never underestimate uh, what can happen with regards to those conversations and the power that, that wields i think it, i think it's definitely a source of potential embarrassment to the premier league um which you know it, its reputation is is based on the product and it's based on the entertainment uh involved it's based on representing itself as the as the greatest league in in world football and, and selling that product um, worldwide. And the Premier League has had issues in the past with with owners that um, have, you know, essentially destroyed clubs. Um, if you look at Portsmouth, what happened to them under uh, Guidemax ownership um, and where they, they, they descended to as a result of his overspending. Um, and ironically, they had a big problem with the previous Manchester City owner owner um, Takshin Shinawatra and uh, essentially were, were their fit and proper persons rule was called into question over Shinawatra because uh, again ironically because of his human rights record as the former president of Thailand and um, they weren't able to do anything about it at the time because he had he was not he hadn't been found guilty of any crime at that point therefore he passed the fit and proper persons test but uh, when you take it away from the actual letter of the law, it seemed to most people that he certainly wasn't a fit and proper person to, to run a football club. And as I understand it, and there's some interesting comments from uh, from uh, Scudamore, the, the outgoing chief executive of the Premier League, subsequent to that sale to Abu Dhabi, um, the Premier League put a lot of pressure on and, and put a lot of work behind the scenes to ensure that Shinawatra was moved out of Manchester City before he became too much of an embarrassment and, and effectively facilitated the sale of the club to Abu Dhabi, who, again, ironically, um, about a year later, uh, stripped uh, Shinawatra of his position as honorary club president because of his human rights record. So I don't think this, you know, it can only stay away as long as people don't pay attention to it. And when something like the Hedges incident occurs, um, what has been an ongoing campaign against um, the human rights abuses in Abu Dhabi by the, the, the people that he mentions, turns into something that became the lead news, lead story on the BBC News, um, and went straight into the consciousness of the nation and resulted in the Foreign Office taking action to not have that the charge against him and, and the, um, the fact he'd been found guilty and imprisoned to life um, stripped away. Uh, the, the UAE are insisting that he was still 100% a um, operative of the UK government, a spy, but to be pardoned. So they, they, they managed to get him um, out of the country and out of jail. But I don't see, I, I, I say, I don't see it going away um, anytime soon if some a similar situation comes up and the questions are asked again and the pressure in the Premier League as Ian points out will increase once government start starts asking questions about owners of football clubs 
And once you, when you have a scenario where nations are buying football clubs, you get these kind of political problems, especially of nations of this type. And you know, we talked a few weeks ago about Manchester United um, and Saudi Arabia's interest in buying Manchester United. This is very relevant to that because Saudi Arabia is another uh, nation with extremely questionable human rights record. And if um, the Premier League was to tighten up its rules under government pressure about ownership, then you can forget about, I think, Saudi Arabia ever being allowed to, to buy um, the, the wealthiest club in English football. Okay, guys, one of the surprise packages of this year's Premier League season has been Watford, and there is some good news afoot for their manager, Duncan. Tell us more. Yeah, their manager, um, Javi Garcia, um, has agreed a new long-term contract with Watford. Um, and it's been trailed for a little while. But what um, I understand is that the length of that contract is going to be a lot longer than anyone has expected, particularly given uh, the reputation of the owners of the club since they, since they took over Watford of, of uh, hiring and dispensing with, um, with uh, managers and coaches at a rate of knots. Um, they, as I understand it, they want to make a point of showing their faith and Gracia and um, and to make a point of the fact that they are prepared to invest in in coaching talent as well as uh, talent on the field, which is what they've been so, so successful at at Watford and how they've managed to establish Watford as a you know as a as a strong um, and regular contender in the in the Premier League and one that's capable of getting uh, towards the, the top end of the division. So I'd say watch out for that um, later in the week and 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 you'll probably get um, a shot by just how many years um, they give Garcia on his new deal um, and uh, and where they, they see him taking the club um, down the line. I've heard, Johnny, um, that by uh, relative terms, it could be a life sentence for Garcia, <laughs> which, which, you know, which, given that he's in Watford, you know, may well feel like time well done. Okay. <laughs> Apologies to offence for anyone from Watford who might be listening. Okay, guys, we're going into the quickfire round now. And um, in the spirit of the just-announced TV debate between Theresa May and Jeremy Corbyn on Brexit, we're going to look at the footballing superstars um, that would make a great debate and who they would make a great debate with. It'll make sense once we start. We're going to start with Duncan, Josie Mourinho. I like the concept of this. I mean, that's kind of a journalist dream to, to get two antagonists together and sit them down in the room and just listen to them uh, uh, argue their cases out uh, between each other. And I think I think if you're asking for Jose Mourinho, there are um, there's, there are quite a few people you could you could pair him with. Um, you know, Jamie Redknapp would be quite amusing for one, um, and uh, maybe Sky should think about that one. But I think if you that absolute number one choice at present has to be Paul Pogba. Um, you know, the, the the player who's had to be shut down from uh, talking after games because he keeps having making uh, derogatory comments about his manager and his, his tactical selection. Um, and I think if we could throw Mino Raiola in the room too, it would be absolute television gold. Ian, Pep Guardiola. Uh, Jory, oh, Pep Guardiola's a difficult one, isn't he? Because he's the man with no enemies in football. Um <laughs> Uh, so the, uh, unlike the enemy of football across the city, so it's it's a hard one to find um, someone who would take issue with Pep, other than maybe God himself, um, who might just have the odd question about you know you know Pep's dress sense or something. So I would, in the interest of complete entertainment, and 
just watchability, I'd get our very own Duncan Castles on the live TV debate with Pep and uh, watch our very own graduated doctor um, prescribe all the things that's wrong with Pep and all the things that he could do to make it better. <laughs> <laughs> well, we had a little go at that last season when we asked him about his transfer spent. I think some people find that quite entertaining. Uh, if you look back in the, the, the previous podcast, indeed, yes, indeed. Are you allowed back? That's the question. Uh, that is the question, yes. <laughs> okay, Duncan, next one is Neymar. Uh, Neymar, um, well, who doesn't? Who does uh, Neymar not get on with? Quite a few people. But if we were to choose the most entertaining debate, I think it has to be Neymar in a room with Edson Cavani explaining why he should have all the penalties and he should have all the free kicks. And they should never ever be in a practice match against each other. And I think I think you, John, you've got a good story about why that why that's the, the case. Yeah, well indeed. I mean anyone who watched the Brazil versus Uruguay friendly that was on recently would have seen uh, Neymar scampering down the wing only to have the giant figure of Cavani charge towards him and take him clean out. Not only that, just to rub salt into the wounds, Cavani leans over Neymar, gives him a hearty, what can only be described as slap and then wanders away, mouthing obscenities in Neymar's direction. So if anyone has any doubt how they uh, get on, you just need to have a look at that clip on Twitter. I, suspect- I, thought you were gonna, I thought you were going to tell me that Neymar had made a tackle. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been something to behold. That's how much he dislikes Edison Cavani. <laughs> okay, and we're going to round this off with Ian and Mo Salah. Well, again, Johnny, Mo Salah, the like, most likable guy in football, a bit like Pep, you know, who does he have enemy? Well, no one really, because he's, you know, all smiley, lovely guy. Everyone loves him as well, except the nemesis that is Sergio Ramos. And let's face it, Ramos, you could put in a live TV debate with anyone and he'd probably clean them out within about 10 seconds, never mind have a debate with them. Uh, but I'd love to see... Uh, Mo Salah sort of effectively square up mano a mano to Sergio Ramos, making each hand for each of the players and say, right, okay, let's just clear this Champions League final debate up. Did you actually try to do me? Or was it, as you claim, just part of the game? And after that, I think we could have you know some of the most compelling television until such time that Sergio Ramos wiped him out again. Would we also be televising the uh, post-debate drug test? <laughs> Uh, okay, we can definitely cut that out of the edit. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, if you ask uh, Sergio Ramos who would like to be picked with, it would no doubt be Ian McGarry after his uh, cancer comments. Sramos. Cancer <laughs> <laughs> the dressing room. That was you holding back, Ian. It was me holding back. <laughs> and with that, I'm slamming this particular transfer window shut. Just a reminder, we are looking for a sponsor, so if you like the idea of partnering with one of the UK's best football podcasts and talking directly to our listeners about your brand, get in touch through our social media channels. To continue the debate, we are all on Twitter and even have our own Transfer Window official account at Transfer Podcast. We're trying to build a community on that account, so everyone who follows will get a follow back. 
I'm at Johnny R. McFarlane, and most importantly, our pundits are at Duncan Castles and at Carbo SJ if you want to speak to us individually. And if you like the podcast, and we know thousands of you do, please give something back by popping onto iTunes and giving us a five-star review, as this helps us to reach as many listeners as possible. We'll be back next Tuesday before 3pm. Until next time, thanks for listening.